we have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. The Oswald has been shot. Paddock fired out of two adjoining rooms using a device similar to a hammer to smash the windows. Several uh, flying saucers there of extraterrestrial origin. Digging Chris Graves. Hi, welcome to another Digging Chris Graves. That's me. Um, I have a very special guest, uh, special effects master, Mr. Vincent Guastini. Welcome to the show, sir. Oh, well, thank you. I, I see in your opening, uh, you already got a few favorite subjects of mine. Um, you got uh, JFK in there, UFOs, yeah. Area 51, um, and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Couple other things I didn't expect in that opening for an entertainment uh, well, podcast. That, <laughs> uh, that's quite unique. I just realized uh, as it was playing that I'm like, oh, I probably should have uh, explained to him that not only do I go into entertainment and things like that, I go into, I don't believe every conspiracy theory, but I like to go over some of the ones that have questionable things behind them, possibly. Um, and yeah. some of that footage uh, kind of, uh, encapsulates that is that the right word <laughs> but i would say so i would yes. say so so i'm not i, I believe, I believe uh, in um uh, in uh, some conspiracy theories not not um not all of them i'm not i'm not yeah. a, a a completely over the moon or the rainbow about a lot of them but there are some you know yeah. na namely the uh the covid cover-up you know for sure you know uh is a big one for me um you know fauci who was once a hero yeah. and now that almost died of covid and was in icu for over a month uh to about almost two years ago That's right. um i can't wait for this this fucker to be out <laughs> yeah do you think you do you think deep down i don't know how i don't know how to feel about it but do you think he'll he'll ever see justice fauci no I don't. I I think um, I think he's um, um, somebody that got caught uh, doing some stuff in the lab and and uh, you know uh, with the testing and uh, you know and it was it was proven from some of the leaks of the emails and stuff. I mean, way back when that it was a lab, uh, probably a very strong possibility of a lab orchestrated accident. So yeah, the gain, you know, the, gain the gain of function stuff, right? Yeah, the game function stuff, which he, you know, which he was funding, which I know his retort is that's what normal scientific research would do, which is gain a function. But um, maybe that's so. But covering up an accident um, is not not normal scientific research, um, at, at least not when you're, when you're almost, uh, you know, uh, you know, disrupting the entire planet. And including taking people's lives, including my own. So I have uh, strong conviction. My grandfather too. Yeah. So, um, but I didn't mean to start off the conversation no. with politics. No, not even that. I mean, you had brought. If you're comfortable, um, we could, maybe it's a chance for you to be able to talk about things you're not ordinarily asked. You said you had an interest in UFOs and JFK. Uh, was that right off the bat, like when you were a kid, or? Did you go research? Um, I would say with um, UFOs, it's always I've, I've had I've had experiences. Um, really? um, oh yeah, um, quite a few. Not like an abduction or anything like that, yeah. but um, I, I did have one sighting that changed my life. I've had other experiences that have changed my life as a child uh, with my parents, uh, and um, and that's kind of what the impotence of, of me being uh, my life changing uh, in believing in that stuff. Um, so, uh, 
Yeah, so I'm deeply affected by that. And with JFK, I think as a child, because my mother told me that um, I was in her arms. She remembers when I, uh, JFK got shot and she was breastfeeding me um, and heard the news over the radio. And so at a very young age, her telling me that and then plus seeing all the footage of um, the funeral and that weird, you know, as a child TV, you're very impressionable. You know, you watch these black and white images as a kid and it almost seems dreamlike. And so seeing the funeral and that, you and know. John, the, John, John, John doing the salute. Yeah, and then too. Yeah, you know, and all that stuff. So at a very, very young age, all that was very impressionable to me. And I'm like, wow, somebody really important like that, like the president, was shot in front of everybody, and you don't, you know, and and you question death and life at that age. So that left a big impression on me that I became, even in my younger years, um, you know, all the way up until like eleven years old all the way up until now i obsessed with the subject of jfk and yeah. learning every, reading almost every book i could possibly get my hands on since my uh, i was a young kid going to you know uh dealey plaza where it happened and 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 you know and and meeting the guy that wrote that book you know uh on the assassination of jfk and and actually meeting him there because he sells the book and pamphlets and things like that Right oh, there. At, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Yeah. Happened. So, you know, um, you know, so yeah, I, I've always been fascinated with that and 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 the simple fact that they've covered up so much and not released everything until this day. I mean, yeah. because of national security, you yeah. know, um, uh, says, well, what's the national security if the, everybody's dead? What, what's who the big secret? Yeah, exactly. So that's well, bullshit, you know. That's what I always thought, yeah. I looked into his, uh, John Jr.'s uh, death, too, and there's a lot of weird things about that, too. There could be. I always try to be grounded. I mean, even, I mean, as I've gotten older, even with, uh, you know, you know, I believe in ghosts and, and things like that, you know, not every single thing is a ghost. You know, there are, you know, yeah. not every single thing is a conspiracy. I mean, did JFK Jr. just go out late that night and didn't see the ocean, or yeah. did, what? You know, wasn't the most experienced pilot, so you know, and taking his, you know, his then wife and friends on on that jaunt on the plane that night, it could just very well be an accident, you know. So that yeah. I mean, don't look at every single thing, even though th there is a weird JFK curse, you know, with that whole family. You know, it seems like every, you know, aspect of their lives somehow turns to shit. Well, if you, you look know? at if you look at if you look at it a little bit closer, just um, like that's the surface thing. The curse thing is more of a media thing where they like to say, oh, you know, uh, they they have this curse. But it seems like when you look closer to a lot of these deaths in that family, like there's a lot of weird stuff. And the only reason I say that, I agree with you. Like, I don't go like I'm open to the idea. The flat earth thing is more entertaining to me than anything. I don't know if it is or not. Same with did we land on the moon? I have no idea, but I'm not like married to a certain thing. So I'm with you. I'm not I, I like to look into a subject or whatever because they lie to us so much Um the media, the government. So I have to look. The only reason I bring up the JFK Jr. thing is because I'm from Massachusetts. So our local news had different reports than what everyone else had. And there were witnesses that saw an explosion in the sky. And then that story disappeared. So that just makes me think, like, did they blow up his plane? You know, you people never heard that story because it went away very fast. So when I hear things like that, it puts up like well, I mean, one of the things is what political um, um, aspirations or, or good would it do to blow him up anyway? Because he really wasn't involved in any of the deep, you know, I mean, he had his magazine. He was a, you know, he's ba basically a playboy. He was, so he was I, starting I, to look I into his spot. He was hiring. He, oh, no, no, no. I looked into it a little bit further. He was going to turn George magazine into a platform to um because if you talk to people that were really close to him like his close friends he was getting ready to put his hat in the ring either for the new york uh, senate seat that hillary clinton ended up getting or as an independent for uh the presidency against gore and bush like that's the two things that 
uh, are brought up a lot. And he was just about to announce that. And if that's the case, and he's looking into his father and his uncle's deaths again with that magazine, like hiring uh, expert reporters and things to kind of blow. If he became okay. president again, he'd be a big threat in my mind. Okay. My okay but I mean, look at what, what Trump has done. Yeah. I mean, uh, why hasn't he had a bullet in his head? I feel like he's... No, a I mean... I mean, if anybody is in danger of gotten an assassination, was him being, you know, being in office at any? I mean, that guy was pretty ballsy to begin with, but to be walking around the way he's been walking around, I'm surprised he's not dead. You know, like I actually uh, thought they were going to try. Do you remember when he got COVID? Oh, I did too. I thought he was over with. I thought, you know, yeah, yeah. It was that's what I had thought. But, but anyway, I. Uh, I yeah, this, these type of things are so divisive too. But I'll go if you don't mind going back to your experience with the UFO thing. Uh, I'll just say the only time I ever had one was with the Black Triangle. You remember hearing about those in the '90s, kind of like they're real silent. They basically took the place yeah. of the saucers, but like later on, I saw that. Yeah, now they're saying that might be a secret uh, um, government Classif you know, classified technology. Yeah. And that, you know, um, you know, at like three or four o'clock in the morning um, and in Burbank and in California, you would hear these loud sounds. And there was a rumor that really? this is when they were doing those tests. And I've heard them here, too, you know, like three, three a.m., very bizarre, you know, sounds, you know, going back about eight years ago. But as a child, um, everybody started experiencing stuff except me, my parents, um, my mother mostly, but I was always wanted to experience or see something. And I never did until this time. But the one experience that happened was me and my, my parents were at KOA campground, which is um, um, back East at the time uh, near the Playboy mansion um, up around there. They had the KOA campgrounds. We would go up and go camping. So, uh, we were there. It was our first time camping. We were with my aunt and my aunt and my mother had a giant, huge Italian all-out brawl fight argument wow. uh, that very night. So it was very memorable for 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 an eight-year-old to you know eight or nine uh, to remember this. And they went in their cabin. I mean their uh, tent, and we went in ours. My mother was ill-equipped uh, to go camping because she brought lawn chairs for us to sleep on in a tent right. barely you know enough blankets or equipment to do any of this in and um and that very night a bright light i was very feverish and sick because it was so cold and it was raining all of a sudden a bright light enveloped the whole tent and um my mother got up and said who the hell is that my father's like us oh, it's probably from the road somebody with their truck lights on has their high beams on. And my mother's like, who the hell is going to have their high beams on at this time? You go, well, so it's a campground, Gene. You know, somebody's probably leaving the campground. So she opens the zipper up. Now, remember, my, my mother can be a little dramatic and a little over the top, but I'm witnessing this, okay, while I'm on the lawn chair inside the tent. And she opens it up and looks outside and goes, oh, my God. I can't fucking believe this. There's a flying saucer above us. Really? So my father gets up and goes, get the hell out of here, Gene. And my father, how can I put this? He wouldn't he's make sense. He's very, he's kind of like grounded. He's not very, you know, it, it, take it as it comes type of guy. Doesn't really extrapolate or add to things that yeah. are going on very straight laced type of a dude in a way, you know, and when it comes to things like that, like even if so he saw he would, something weird, he wouldn't acknowledge it kind of, cause I've known people well, like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's one, you know, so he opens the tent. I'm watching him open the tent and he goes, Oh my God, Gene, you're right. It's a flying saucer. Wow. So there's something in me. I'm on the lawn chair and I want to have every being of my body to get up and go to the front to see what they're looking at, but I couldn't move. Now, whether that was from being sick 
from being numb in the tent, being cold, didn't want to get up. But every part of my body and my brain wanted to get up to go run out and see what the hell they were talking about. I couldn't do it, and I just fell asleep, which was weird. Wow. So the next day, we woke up, and I guess my mother and my aunt kind of made up a little bit. She says, did you see that bright light last night? My aunt even confirmed it and said, yeah, we all saw the bright light, but we went back to sleep. We just thought it was a truck. So my mother said no, and my father was saying that. And then my aunt later on called and said on the radio when they because when you go to a campground back then, I think they still do it. You know how you go to a, an area and they'll go turn on this station and they have their own little news type of a thing. Yeah, for instructions. So yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah, they, they had an announcement on there that there were some sightings and then it went actually national on the radio at that point saying that there were UFO uh, um, reports in the KOA campground that very night that we were, we were leaving you know that right. that day we were you know so so that was weird that was the first thing another one was I woke up my mother and father had a divorce we went to Florida we came back to Florida we, we were staying at an um, my aunt's house, which wasn't sold yet. There was no furniture. It was just a couch. Until my mother got on her feet, I was around 10 years old. And um, we, uh, I was on the couch. And late one night, I woke up and I saw my mother uh, with the light of a, of, from outside, from, from out in the street, beaming down on my mother and my dog. And I remember looking at them, looking outside. The backyard and they were looking up and the weird thing was my dog was doing this and just sitting there with its head tilted completely up like like, like an arrow just totally focused and my mother was too wow. i remember going back to sleep and waking back up and they were still there and my mother's smoking a cigarette and i'm like mom is everything okay she says yeah everything's fine just go back to sleep the next day she told me that this black object came over the building. She drew it on a, a piece of legal yellow pad. I remember this as a kid or telling me and she heard a voice in her head. And my mother supposedly responds, she goes, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. I'm not coming with you. Wow. And said, she didn't know if it was a dream. She didn't know whether it was for real. And then I told her when I woke up at one point, yeah. I saw her and the dog, and she's going, oh, that's really weird that you saw that. She goes, I didn't. She goes, I just thought that I was dreaming. So you actually saw me looking wow. up into the dog. I said it was the weirdest thing because the dog's head was straight up yeah. looking at why totally still. Wow. So um, that was once so I was sitting there always going over the years. I'm like, I want to see one. I want to mm -hmm. see a real UFO. You know, it'd be cool to see one. So many, many years go by, and I'm about 14 or 15 years old. And me and my friend, Johnny DeGregoli, were in Jersey City Heights is where we lived on Jefferson Avenue. And we're on a friend's porch. His name was Johnny Albanese, which had a construct he had a construction business, and we were leaning up against his porch. So what I'm trying to give you is if I'm leaning up against the porch, this is you're the view of me. And yeah. we're looking out that way. And Johnny Albanese is talking to both of us. <laughs> and over our view, if you took a maybe, I don't know, something larger than a candy bar, yeah, in that shape, comes over the street, and it looked like the World Trade Center on its side. That's wow. what it looked to me. Wow. Like this, it came into view, and then it snapped out across the horizon. I mean, the thing was immense, like the size of a skyscraper in the sky. Could it be one of those uh, cigar-shaped ones that I, you hear about? No, over the which ones? No. Just think of the World Trade Center. Exactly. On like its it. Okay. All right. Wow. Cigar-shaped. Exactly that square shape, long in a building. Building. With just wow. light. 
I mean, you know, and all of this bizarre, intricate, you know. Were the lights blinking on and off like uh, simultaneously? No, it was like a skyscraper. There was no, I, I, what I remember, there were no, it was like basically a building in the sky right. on its side. And it just wow. went, stopped, went like that. And I turned around to Johnny DeGregoli because it was gone. And I go, did you just see that? And he goes, my nickname was Jamie because my middle name's James. And I had a nickname, Jamie. Turner and he goes, Jamie, I saw it. And all I want to tell you is I want to see it again. <laughs> no noise. And then, and then the guy's talking to us that didn't see it, was looking at us. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? And we told him, he goes, ah, get the hell out of here. You guys are crazy. Right. So after seeing that, that was the end. Something that huge and move like that. And it just stopped, right? It could stop, but then it, went, it just went stop yep. for a minute, like, hi, you see me? And yeah. then bang. That's like a triangle with me. It made no noise. No noise. It scared the hell out of me. I don't yeah, know what it was. I don't that... sorry. Yeah, when you see something that big and and um, could it be our military with a, uh, with a building in the sky that can move like that? I doubt it. Right. 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 You know, I, I mean, you know, I really do. You know, we're talking about, I'm 59. That's when I was 14 years old. So the technology. <laughs> right. Right. I actually feel like it's a little, I can't prove it obviously, but I feel like it's a little bit of both. I feel like it's classified technology, and then there's other ones that are from far away that are not ours at all. I think it's a little bit of both of what people see, but I don't, I don't know. I can't claim if it was extraterrestrial or military or what, because I don't know. But real weird stuff, like whatever it was. But wow, so that changed you, and it, it, did that? Um, did that kind of put you on the path, like, uh, or were you always creative, like as a child, anyway? Like you had so I started with my mother bringing me to her bingo games and we'd always have a model kit. So while she was playing bingo as a child, I, I started with model kits. Yeah. Uh, after I started watching Planet of the Apes and, and, and all those movies back in the 70s, I started sculpting like stuff on my action figures, like changing. I had like the Planet of the Apes set. I would make believe the apes took uh, Charlton Heston and started doing medical experiments and turning them into like a half fish, half half human creature. So I would look at my creature the black Lagoon model and copy the features on the little figure. So that was yeah. kind of full of clay. Wow. You know, I was always into Godzilla sort of uh, those movies, but then what I really graduated into is like Ray Harryhausen and you know Jason yeah. and the Argonauts and you know the you know the, the stop motion you know, stuff. Yeah, the Sinbad movies. Yeah. So I started doing stop, and then you know, years later, I started doing stop motion as an amateur, as a kid, uh, with my other childhood friend at the time, Ronald Cole, and we started, uh, we collaborated on a stop motion movie called Gem of the Gods, and we made the amateurs out of pin, um, clothes pins, and pretty advanced because we got this book called Film Effects that a man named John Dodds and Don Dohler put out. I and it had I, all the like, stuff. Yeah. yeah, far story and all the stuff that they were working on. And so we basically copied a lot of those techniques and made our own movie. And Ray Harryhausen was going to be at a convention. So here I am, I'm 16 years old. We got our first stop motion film. I convinced Ray Harryhausen to come to the screening and I have to sync up the sound with a tape recorder. So. <laughs> <laughs> old school i love it yeah <laughs> he watched the entire movie was announced at the creation con back then i don't know what year that was when i was 16 years old and um he says oh i see you make your characters talk he goes the animation is quite good and he was very impressed and he uh he sat down there and, and watched the whole thing and uh you know the whole 15 minutes of it and you know, gave me critiques and everything. And so that was kind of my first foray into doing like effects because yeah. I wanted to be a filmmaker is where I started. Director, you know, is where I wanted to be. 
you know, because we would fool around do like eight millimeter like recreations of Star Wars. Right. You know, and uh, there were other friends too. We wanted to do this thing called Beggars Canyon, where we're going to have a race down, you know, the Beggars Canyon with the with the Skyhoppers, and we were building a full size one in my basement. Wow. So I mean, we were Star Wars crazy and filmmaker crazy, and so doing that with Ray Harryhausen was kind of the first little thing. I don't tell this story much, by the way, not even in magazines. So I think it was the whole UFO thing and you bringing up my childhood. It kind of re-reminded me of yeah. like my sparks into doing what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of my first foray. And then, of course, in the 80s, uh, what solidified it was that whole thing when the howling American werewolf came out. And then what really solidified it was doing effects is when I went and saw by myself after having a fight with my ex-wife that back then, though, was my girlfriend, yeah. went to state movie theater in Jersey City and saw The Thing. The Thing. And when I saw John Carpenter's The Thing, that was, that was the end for me. I, wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do special makeup effects. Now, for those out there that, that are not familiar, there's a... Uh... The, the gentleman that did the effects for the John Carpenter's The Thing, Rob Bottin, also did the effects, I believe, for The Howling, too, because he took over mm -hmm. for Rick Baker, I think, because he was originally supposed to do it with Joe Dante, I think. Um, did you well, have I, have, I actually have the whole thing. Um, there was a man back that my, my, my then wife was working in a publishing company. And she knew of a man that was going to uh, coming out with a, um, a, a magazine, um, a horror magazine. And his first interview that he taped was Rob Bottin. Was it Fangoria? And, and no, it was an oh, unknown oh. magazine. Oh, it oh. got two reviews and then, did, and then that was the end of it. And funny enough, this man uh, was watching Rob get drunk in the interview, uh, drinking Bacardi's. Yeah. And Rob expelling a lot of personal information about how him and Rick Baker weren't friends anymore. And there was a rivalry, you know, because of the howling yeah. and, and everybody blaming Rob for stealing everything off of Rick. Yeah. And that he might be blackballed in the business, but thankfully because the howling came out first, yep. uh, put him on the map. And then of course the thing. And so he wasn't blackballed. He was, uh, became, famous at 21 years old right so and that tape was given to me a copy um and wow. um it has a lot of private things on there it says not for print this is for print that's not for print right and so i had that 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 cassette um to this day you know and it really reveals a lot of private stuff and stupidly i've uh Back then, at a younger age, in my in my twenties, uh, uh, trusted a few effects people when I did come to LA, and the tape got around. Uh, people made copies, and <laughs> I heard it might have gotten back to Rob, and he was pissed. But um, um, later on, I had some little contact with Rob that uh, I guess uh, I'm okay, you know. But that was this. I'm talking about very old stories right now. That's very great. Old. No, I, hey, I'm uh, I'm a child of Fangoria, uh, famous monsters. Yeah, no, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Whole, and you know what? If it's just me and you talking, that, that's all right with me. Because uh, Rob Bottin, I always felt bad because he kind of disappeared from uh, from the business. Or I know it was Freddy versus Jason. He's supposed to write and direct in like '97. I don't know if that had something to do with it. Like dealing with New oh, Line. I'll be honest with you. I, I know a, a person that was working at New Line was a part uh, or, or around the information of those meetings that were going on because he was the um, he was the guy that would get scripts and recommend them to the studio to read to possibly mm -hmm. make. And, and he was one of those guys at, at New Line at the time. And he told me that Rob kind of scared a bunch of people off um, in that meeting. Um for Freddy versus Jason. And I, and I think a lot of that is because Rob is so um, broad minded and bold uh, that that scares some people, you know, because he, he was getting into a business that was changing, you know, yeah. there, there was no longer 
Supreme had just where, come out and all that. And yeah, yeah. And, and 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 you know, he was supposed to. I mean, I interviewed with him uh, when he was supposed to do Jurassic Park. Um, really? Yeah, uh, a lot of people don't know that, but he was up for that show, and he didn't get it, of course, as we know. And and that changed the business as well, as you know, when that movie came out, changed a lot of things. But that was the time I was interviewing with Rob was was uh, was during the time that he was supposedly going to be up for Jurassic Park. Um, and so, um, you know, that's when I visited with him the first time. And thanks to another makeup artist named of John Caglione Jr., <laughs> who actually set this who actually set this whole thing up for me to meet him. And uh, but before, not to cut you off, but I believe he did the makeup or uh, did a lot of the makeup for one of my favorite movies, uh, a really goofy one, and it's called Chud. I think that was John Caglione. Yes, he was, but he's <laughs> done more than that. I mean, you know, you're talking about the Cotton Club. He won the Oscar for doing the Joker. Oh, I know. Or I'm telling you, I'm just saying the Chud though. Yeah, is yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I love Chud too. Um, 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 he also, I mean, his design ethic. Uh, was also seen with that same type of design in the Amityville 3D monster. That's right. Yeah. It, the, well, the well monster looks basically like a, a, a chud in a suit, you know, know. and that's the, the same type of head and the I eyes and he, all. It's he, a great he, design. Did he do Heath Ledger's uh, Rictus Grin, too, for the Joker? That's yeah, what I thought, the yeah. Joker, um, he won the Oscar for Dick Tracy with Doug Drexler. That's right. Uh, yeah who's another big effects guy uh, who was into makeup and went into production design uh, on the Star Trek uh, universe and won Emmys, uh, you know, up and down uh, for, for doing those effects, doing CG as well as production design. Right. Uh, he still does to this day. Uh, I think he's working on the Orville. He's working on Picard. Oh, so, yeah. so Doug went to another aspect of the business, but uh, just as successful, if not more so than right. when he was, in the uh, makeup effects business. So he's done everything, Doug, you know, so, yeah. and John is still doing Al Pacino's makeup and doing movies and, uh, you know, and teaching and, uh, you know, and so he was always a good friend to me. Uh, so he set up this meeting for you with, uh, for, uh, yeah, cause I had cut you off around that point. So he set up the meeting with, for you and uh, Rob Botine, right? Like uh, around yes, that time. Okay. Yes. And, um, and, this was before I settled in California. So um, I met Rob and uh, it was probably uh, one in a lifetime type of introduction because secretly I was stalking him years before that, <laughs> just calling all the time. I came to California for visits to try and, you know, to try and get, you know, to see him and uh, turned down all the time until I had somewhat of a resume and a portfolio from doing stuff from back East and, Getting uh, Fred Clark was an instrumental of Cinefantastique magazine was instrumental yep. in helping my career, uh, giving articles and publicity and that. So started to get a name, you know. And um, you were even in Fangoria too, right? In the late eighties, I believe. Yeah, I was. I wasn't in that magazine too much, um, um, not by choice, but it, it just was one of those things that. You know, uh, you know, I wasn't the, you know, the Fangoria kid. You know, it was like, oh, okay, yeah. So for me, well, I'm like geeking out here, but you're just no, I no, see. I was. No, what I mean oh. was being like the flavor of the month all the time, like Tom Savini was, and all yeah. the, you know, yeah. I don't know. I have, a, I have a weird thing where you know, I'm I'm heard of more by producers and directors, but like you know, in some areas, I'm not covered as much. You know, with magazines and books right. and things like that. Um, but occasionally, well, but I mean, neither is Rob, you know, Rob, you know, you know, you know, um, you guys are superstars to me. Uh, and, you know, well, I don't look at myself as a superstar. I look at some, you know, I look at myself as um, somebody that does a really good job in what I do. And uh, just think about it. You, did, you, you were part of Saturday Night Live at one of my favorite uh, phases, like with uh, Farley and, and uh, Phil Hartman and Norm MacDonald and all that. Like You were part of that. And then you were winning awards for like Requiem for a Dream. Like, so, you know what I mean? Like you were <laughs> Child's Play 3, I think, uh, Trauma, like all these things. It, 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 I know, and I, I'm glad that you're humble because if you weren't humble, 
you'd probably be like some of these other, uh, you know, people we had just mentioned. Um, I'm not going to say the exact one, but one guy was really rude to me. And uh, that that is unfortunate if, you know, a fan you know, meets one of their heroes, you know, that, that saying never meet your heroes, but I'm glad you're humble, but you've done some pretty groundbreaking stuff yourself, my friend. Like, well, I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, that. That's what I've tried to do. Um, and I'm glad that that message got across, you know, I've been doing it a long time and, um, you know, and I've had a lot of uh, heavy hitters come out, you know, that worked for me, um, you know, uh, that, uh, that I've helped you know, uh, that, that I'm so proud of, you know, um, you know, I mean, the reason why I got on SNL too was, um, there was a young guy that was up and coming named Louis Zakarian, um, who would come on and help me on my movies all the time. And that he, you know, he, he grew into being really good that I started making him a coordinator on all my movies. And, so anytime I had a movie, you know, I would, I would hire, I would hire Louie because these were my friends. I had Louie, uh, Vinny, uh, Vinny Skeeky, Tom Denier Jr., Joe Macchia. This was my kind of East Coast, Mike Marino. These were all kind of my East Coast crew. Yeah. So um, um, I would, uh, when I had a shop back there, I would always, you know, hire these guys. And when SNL came up, Louie asked me to come on as a second, you know, um, and what the great thing about SNL was, it wasn't like I had to be there every day. So I could do movies right. and do SNL because you're, I was only there three days a week, really. Uh, it was like Wednesday, Thursday, maybe, maybe, no, not Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday was the normal. Yeah. Unless schedule call for a heavy special effect that we'd have to be in there earlier like to prep. A, like, a, like a commercial they had to pre-tape, that type of thing. Right, yeah. exactly. So I was there maybe three, four times a week. And I could take leave of absences. So if I had to do a movie, I could leave for months and Louie would find a replacement and then I could come back and plug back in. And that's kind of how the arrangement was. And if Louie's schedule was uh, loosened, hey, you, hey, Louie, you want to come on Dogma? You know, um, mm -hmm. is, is SNL on a, you know, on a hiatus? You know, so, uh, you know, that, that's the type of relationship we had back then. And um, so we'd go back and forth like that. And that's how I kind of got on SNL. And I got on SNL when it was Horatio Sands, who's still in touch with me and still a friend of mine to this day. Um, and, um, and then Jimmy Fallon. That was their first day that I started is their first day, which was Jimmy Fallon and Horatio Sands. And it was the first day we life casted them because anybody of a, of a cast member that comes in, you have to do all their life casts the first day. So we have a, a recorded life cast record to do whatever effect we're going to have to do for the seasons or the years that they're on, uh, right. on the show. Like Will Ferrell. And well, well, yeah, I was Daryl Hammond's makeup artist for the first year, personal makeup artist on, on everything. So we were all assigned certain people. And then um, after I came back from the summer, um, I was assigned to Will Ferrell and, and, and that I really had a blast with Will. Um, as well as with everybody. I mean, I always got to do uh, everybody on the cast a little bit, you know, Chris yeah. Kattan and uh, other people. Uh, but I was assigned to mostly do Will Farrell, And that was probably uh, like the guys, great. Like, like, like George W. Bush, like around that that era, like when he was doing, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was doing Bush and, and, um, and uh, James Lipton and, uh, <laughs> you know, all that stuff, you know. All yeah, that, yeah, the Jeopardy, Alex Trebek. That thing. Yeah, the Alex Trebek one. You know, I also did the famous Cowbell one. Uh, you know, yeah, I, wow. I, where I worked with, you know, I, I've done Christopher Walken's makeup a few times, and I've done, and then, but I was on that show doing Will's, and you'll, you'll, you'll see if you look real close, and there's some stills when they, when they stop the end of the tape where you'll see the beard start to peel off of Will Farrell's face. So, <laughs> so when you're doing the sketch, one of my, my beard work, work was starting to come off. Right. <laughs> I think they included that in like the outtakes uh, on one of those shows. And it was hilarious. Yeah. Was. yeah another, another artist uh, named Joe Mackey, I'll call him out, did, did a, a mustache on uh, Norm MacDonald. Yeah. And Norm MacDonald's peeled on the live show. And he just went, he goes, the man that told me that he was uh, was a nice man, 
he, he seemed like an honest guy, but I don't know anymore. And then he put the mustache down right there on the live show. <laughs> so, so he, Norm McDonald played it off, you know, uh, from an accident. Yeah. You know. He's a pro. Yeah. That guy was a pro. You could tell. Yeah. God rest his soul. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a big fan of a movie called Thinner. So, uh, and he that last time. Yeah. Yeah. He worked, he knew I worked on it and I said, well, I have, the alternative ending on videotape, and I lent it to him, and he gave it back to me. He goes, "Oh, thank you. I'm such a big fan of the book and the movie." And so, yeah, he was a great guy. Yeah, Norm was Norm was awesome. And that was directed by Tom Holland, right? Of uh, Fri Fright Night and yeah. Child's Play. Yeah, that's right. Another another uh, lifelong friend uh, after that movie. That uh, you know, we're still friends to this day. Um, um, even though I, I, I got him involved in a $2 million movie that I produced. And uh, I don't know if he's still, if he's mad at me. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> he, could, he, could, he could get mad easily. I just, I could kind of sense that sometimes, you know, in interviews. Yeah. He's a very, he's a very passionate, no bullshit person. Yeah. And that, that's kind of what I gravitate around. Yeah. And then maybe, maybe that's why um, I, I'm not uh, around a lot of Hollywood people as much, you know? Yeah, um, I, have, I have one name in my head, but I, I don't know if I want to. You want me to bring it up or not? Because uh, I, I don't know. You could bring it up maybe after the show, just in case, just to yes. warn me. So you're not caught yeah. by surprise. Because you yeah, know, no, it, would be, yeah. it, would be un, it would be unfair if you mentioned somebody and I had a negative reaction on a live feed like this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I it wouldn't. Would be unfair to that. I mean, you know, yeah. um, I, you know. So yeah, please mention it after the show. You know, no problem. Yeah, yeah no, I, uh, yeah, that wasn't my intention. I, <laughs> um, you were speaking that before you even got into special effects, you were, you were, um, kind of directing like, uh, short films and things, right? As a kid, like the eight millimeter stuff. Uh, have you directed, forgive me, because uh, I, I'm not familiar, but have you uh, made your directorial debut? Like, on, like, uh, I, have, I have made my directorial debut. I've also produced a number of movies, um, uh, small ones. And I was also the executive producer on a remake of Silent Night, Deadly Night called Silent Night, which was directed by Stephen Miller, uh, that I also did the effects for yeah. and uh, was starring Malcolm McDowell. And, um, it was actually a mix between remake and an incident that actually happened, I believe, right? In uh, California in 2008, I think. Or at least that's I, how... I, I don't know that, but I, you know, about the real, the reality of it, but um, all, all I know is that I was brought on as the effects artist, and right. we shot in Canada, and it was with Richard Saperstein, who was the producer of Seven, wow. and, uh, and, and he, and, and this, uh, whatever, I think, uh, $5 million, $3, million, three to $5 million remake. Yeah. I was asked as executive producer because I had a big impact with how I was doing the effects. Right. And so that's what, you know, that's how that came about. And, um, and then I started uh, being a partner with uh, Jennifer uh, Blank Bean and Michael Bean in these very small movies that they were producing. I was doing effects for them. It came on as a producer. And they yeah, gave those, me a those for those out there that might not be familiar, Michael Bean was Reese in uh, Terminator. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and and uh, many other movies. I think he was in Aliens as well. Yeah, yeah. Most probably the most recent, most uh, biggest credit he's had so far right now was probably The Mandalorian. Uh, you yeah, know, he yeah. had a, in a Mandalorian episode, which was really cool. You know, he was to, in Grindhouse. Grindhouse. He was in Planet Terror. Exactly. Yeah. No, just a, an amazing man, amazing artist, amazing um, um, actor. Yeah. And so they gave me the shot to direct a short film. But uh, that's not that hasn't been released yet because there was some legal matters that went on with them and the producers had nothing to do with me that kept it from being released. But uh, the film um, was now put in, in, in a control where I can release it, but it still wasn't finished. So it got on hiatus for many, many years because of those legal issues. And so, um, and it not being done because it was part of an anthology. Right. And other directors never really got a chance to finish theirs or to, to finish the film. But it was very, very strong, the piece that I did. 
and I got another directing job out of the blue um, from um, a, a recommendation, and it was called uh, The Dark Tapes, and it wind up getting an 88 on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, an 88, or at least I think even a 90, anywhere between an 88 and a 90. So the film got 60 film awards, and so despite itself, with some of the difficulties behind the scenes, uh, got good reviews and got out there. Now, yeah. was it a big flash? Is it is it is it, uh, you know a hit like Terrifier Two is, which my friend Damien Leone directed? No, but um, I know what I could have done if I was given more freedom. But right. despite itself, it did get good reviews. It did get released. And at the same time, Ridley Scott came out with a found footage film and we beat it. Right. You know, we beat it and reviewed. So there were some good aspects to that. Now, I think it's very good. I just wanted, you know, I know what could have made it great. And so as any, like any artist, you're very hard on yourself. It's hard so, to walk away. It's hard to walk away too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I have those friends that have seen it that, we, you know, and all these people saying how great it is or good it is. And then you have those silent friends in the business. So you go, okay, they saw my film. They didn't like it. Yeah. Instead of being real with you. Yeah. I've heard that where people sure, either say, you know, like, it was interesting. And that interesting usually means, like, it was dog shit or something. Yeah. Right. Or, or you know, um, and I didn't want to do a found footage movie because I think that they all look like shit. And, and they're really, really, I mean, they're supposed to look like shit. So I did, I did it as a challenge. So after that, I wrote a, um, I, I wrote a synopsis for another story called The Astronaut, um, which uh, Ralph Kaminsky, who, I, who I, uh, I've worked on his films doing effects for, you know, a, a lot of time. You know, Vinny, I got this money and I'm, we're ready to do these effects. And, you know, so I, I got involved with him. And he wrote a first draft of the idea and a synopsis I came up with. And uh, we started getting attention for it. I was about to direct it uh, for um, a, a substantial amount of money. And then that's when COVID hit. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, and so coming out of all of that, only now, of all the damage of COVID and what that's done, and put kind of a stop to my directing producing stuff a little bit yeah i'm starting to get back uh making inroads to making a plan to get back into that aspect of the business again which is directing and producing well, and what about and, the astronaut itself is there any hope right now right now i've only been in the last couple of months uh, uh with a friend named danny mcdermott who's doing rewrites getting it ramped up now to go back to the contacts that I had pre COVID that were interested in doing it yeah. and get revamped again and, and, and getting it pumped up again to, to, to get it to get made. Right. right. So the plan and the impotence right now is to pick up where I got left off from yeah. pre COVID. So, um, and then after COVID I had a, put my business back online. I had to get my, my things in order. Uh, there were a lot of personal things that have happened. You know, I've had crew members that died. Robert Hall was one, oh. Robert Greenwald that did, uh, you know, Teen Wolf and, and, you know, yeah. and a bunch of TV shows and series of movies. And then I had a, a personal friend of mine who's a sculptor here, Cameron Peters, who is an amazing sculptor and best friend die, uh, a couple months after that. So, and not to bring the audience down, but after, after, during COVID, after COVID, big transition, big holdups. The movie business altogether, right? Yeah, but I mean, I'm the weird thing was the shop never stopped working. So whether I was in a hospital bed or not, we were still getting shows. Right. Um, um, on a bad level and on a good level, because I'm, I'm kind of, a micromanager a little bit where I like to, you know, I'm not the type to go home, right. you know, say, okay, guys, you do all the work. You know, I'm not, I'm not that type. It never was. Type of manager where they're, they're whatever they're trying to get their 
under not underlings, but in my opinion, the best manager, the best uh, leader is the one that is willing to do the thing he's asking others to do. Is that what you mean? Yeah, too much. And and I and I, you know, and I've always, you know, I, I've always had a, a you know good friends and crew members. And you know, but when you're not there, things falter, you know, uh, maybe not to your your specifications. And so I got out of the hospital on portable oxygen. And the day I'm out of the hospital, the very next day, Robert Hall dies, and I have to take over a show on portable oxygen and and run the show. And and so I had some crazy times. I'm just glad all of that's behind me now, you know. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Yeah. And I'm not really a personable guy or a guy that likes to, you know, sit here and boo-hoo and tell all his personal information. No, that's, but a big th that's a big thing, though. That is, that's a different, yeah. That's yeah. It's a, word, it's a different color to bring up the Wizard of Oz uh, line right there. <laughs> you know? So. <laughs> what? Well, before we, we uh, wrap up, um, what are some projects besides like the astronaut? that you've always wanted to either work as, you know, a special effects person or uh, even like a screenplay that you had written that maybe you didn't necessarily want to direct yours on your own, or like didn't want to direct it yourself, but you wanted to see it get made. Have you had anything like that? Or, or uh, would you ever direct like a new Friday the 13th or something? Now the rights seem to be getting set or a nightmare on Elm street, even now that Wes's kids have the, had the rights and things like that, like some of those established things that you even worked on, like with Child's Play and things like that. Oh, you know, there's a lot of loaded questions. Sorry, <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty um, all over the place question. But I mean, but the specifically those type of projects, of course, I would love to bring uh, a signature to something like that. You know, I mean, what guy wouldn't, especially a guy? But I'm. Anything I, I want to do, um, it's always about the script and the story. It's not about an effects reel. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be the uh, – there'll be – there has to be really good story and script along with the effects. Right. So um, on that level, that's what I hope to do with the astronaut, other projects I have in mind. Um, and while while I'm paying the bills and doing, and doing, the, you know, doing this makeup effects stuff, I'll always – do makeup effects or, 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 or things that, you know, uh, artistically or in the art field will keep me driven. But I see myself, you know, uh, now that I'm older, um, uh, doing effects, but it, it's all going to be incorporated with filmmaking. So I'm going to be getting more into picking up where I got left off yeah. two years ago. At least that's my hope, God willing. You know, my words to God's ears that um, it all works out. And uh, were, you know, you ever, were, were you ever nervous when the CGI seemed like it was going to take over makeup effects altogether at one point? Because I know people like Tom Savini were talking about it in like the late 90s. It seemed like it was just going to be a cheaper option just to have the CGI instead of the practical things, which I'm a huge fan of, you know. Well, um, back then, um, when that came out, um, the first time I saw Jurassic Park was uh, Louis Zakarian at the time, who was on again, off again in the movie industry at that point, uh, was working at a movie theater. And uh, he uh, was the manager. And so he opened it. Uh, we had a late night showing uh, of like, I think it was like two o'clock in the morning, went to a theater and he had Jurassic Park and he put it on. And we were all like, oh, no. You know, it's like Phil Tippett had when he saw the footage um, back then saying we're extinct, which Steven Spielberg put in the movie. Right. And funny enough, though, I saw the CGI before anybody in the public really saw it because I had a friend who worked on the production who would uh, who's coming. I, I won't mention his name in case he'll later get in trouble. He's no longer really in the in the in the effects business. Uh, he's more of an artist, but um, he came and he had snuggled out a videotape of all the CGI tests that uh, at uh, Mark Dip and um, I forgot the other CGI guy's name. I, I they both directed the uh, that uh, the the movie with the clown um, and the and oh, the it? demon. 
it or uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space or uh, no, it? Yeah, yeah, superhero movie. Oh, Superman with the clown. Um, oh, Spawn. Spawn. Thank you. Mark Dip and a, and oh, and Spaz Williams something. You know, yeah. was the other director. So they were the ones that went rogue from ILM and and and, and started doing tests on the side, and it kind of sabotaged. Uh, the other visual effects chief and went directly to Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy and showed them their tests. And that's how we have CGI today because of them and what, and then being uh, kind of assholes, but in a good way, assholes going <laughs> over their, their boss's head to right. show the producers what they've been doing. And so when, when I saw this from the person that was working on the show, come to my, come to me and visit me for Christmas back in New Jersey and put the videotape in. And the first thing I saw was the Gallimimus Raptor test and then the walking tests that you've seen in all the making of of the T-Rex. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, but that movie showed the perfect symbiotic relationship between practical and CG because Stan Winston wound up doing probably one of the best animatronic puppets of all time. And still to this day, nothing's beaten it. Right. And the same on, on another level, the only person that was having the most uh, wonderful animatronic puppets that were ever seen were Rob Bottin, The Thing. And then, of course, Stan did that in Alien and, and now in Jurassic Park. Uh, you know... Uh, I'm not afraid. No, um, I, I look at it as a tool. Like this whole big controversy now with Mid Journey, you know, all yeah. of these concept artists are all terrified. And I go, oh, now you see what I was talking about when it's happening to special effects guys. Now, when it comes to concept guys, they're all like, oh, it's not art. That's not this, you know, and, um, and um, it's a tool, you know, and you either embrace it, um, like my saying is adapt or die. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, you got to learn to adapt. It's here. See, the you best know? CGI is the CGI you don't even notice, in my opinion. What yeah, Jurassic? No, I mean CGI in movies in general is the the best CGI is the CGI you don't even know is there on the screen. No, exactly. And there's a lot of there's a lot of bad CGI. Like there's a lot of rubber special effects that are bad, and you know there are practical effects, but. You won't see that anymore, even in a big movie, because now they could fix it. Yeah. So you won't even know when somebody's doing bad makeup effects or creature. But that effects. was a charm. That there's a charm to that too. You know, with the older movies, like that, it's a charm. Like, you know, with grindhouse movies and things like that back in the day. But anyway, I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I hope we can do this again. Um, oh, I would love to. Yeah, I got I got a couple things that I uh, that you know when, when they come out, you know, I'd, I'd like to you know talk more about. You know, we did a show for HBO for um, uh, Steve Buscemi and 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 really and Radcliffe, um, um, a Miracle Maker. We did you know a, a Siamese twin that has a combination of practical and CGI yeah. effects. You know, I'm working on a new show right now called Razor, which is um, kind of Blade Runner Matrix uh, mashup. Um, working on right now that, uh, you know, that I'm having a lot of fun because, uh, I'm actually, uh, doing a lot of the work myself, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's you not all work. with my crew, you know? So it's mm -hmm. always nice to get, you know, because when I first started, uh, back in New York, you know, a lot of, of the work was being done by myself. And then here I, I come to LA and I get a crew and, and yeah. so that, Part of that, you know, and not having a lot of time to be an artist anymore, it kind of makes you a little rusty. Right. So it I get back into doing, you know, and I'm also designing and doing concept work on my own and yeah. doing my own pictures. So that's that's fun, you know, to be, be doing that now. So when we the, get uh, the night of the Tommy Knockers come out yet? It did. It was a fun. Um, I, I, I had some, uh, um, a friend, Ralph Kaminsky asked me again to come on board, um, to, uh, do creatures. He was going to direct the movie and then he, uh, for personal reasons bailed out and the DP was shooting it. And yes, it's out. It's gotten so many reviews, uh, on every genre website you could think of on the creature effects and how fun 
the movie is. Is it a perfect movie? No. Is it a fun rubber fest with some cool monsters and um, and some cool gore effects and just a good popcorn movie that you can pop in and have a good time with? Definitely. You know, is definitely. it like my dear Chud? No, nothing will be good. Everyone, all my friends were like, Yeah, you and your chud, you you know, where do you can stick your chud? I'm like, Oh, well, hey, I love chud. I don't know. If you ever watch the making of Iron Man and you see Robert Downey Jr. getting a life cast, he's talking to the crew about one of his favorite movies, and that movie happens to be Chud. Really? Yes, yeah. It's a funny, it's a funny exchange that you'll see Robert Downey Jr. talking about in the very first Iron Man. When he's getting his life cast done to be Iron Man, so uh, I don't know if it's Stan speechless. Or speechless. <laughs> I thought I already yeah. saw all the behind the scenes of Iron Man, and that would have I would have been bringing that up this whole time with all these all these people telling me uh, about my chud and everything. You know, yeah, wow. So, uh, got- you know, he's a fan of that. I mean, here's one other thing before we leave too. When I uh, thanks to Robert Hall, Robert Hall came in with a show, and we're working on it together. And Nick Cage came in to get a life cast. And you know why he got into acting was because of Rob Bottin. And when he told us that we're about to take his life cast, I'm like, how the hell did Rob Bottin get you into acting? And he sits there and he goes, his style of bizarreness and strangeness is what really attracted me. And that's what made me get attracted to the roles I picked. Wow. Wow. When Nick Cage told us that i was like he's my favorite new actor now <laughs> right, right. i know he was but now he went from you know uh, that's a, a cool factor like that's a cool factor yeah 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 i wonder if he was uh if, if he was taken with uh the cantina scene in star wars because that was a lot of rob's work too right the masks and the creatures in the background and things well actually it was it was rick baker doug beswick and rob yeah. came in to do i believe he sculpted one of the band member alien guys the yeah. ones with those guys so rob was on rick's crew um right. along with doug beswick and so and Chris Wayless, and that's when all those guys were kind of working in tandem and together. And Rob was a young, you know, teenager working on Star Wars with Rick Baker. That's right. Yeah, I, I remember there was a Star Wars Cantina thing that Rob had worked on. I, I knew that, and uh, I hope uh, we do get to see him again. At, at, you know, someday. well, I mean, there's a funny story with that. R- Rob was sitting down in a Cantina sequence, and he looked depressed, yeah. and this. Guy, and this is on that tape I have, that secret tape, but it's also out there. It's you, you could find the soundbite where Rob was sitting down looking depressed on the Star Wars set, and this grip who he thought was a grip came over to him and said, Hey, you look pretty upset. What's wrong? He's like, I don't know. It's all these silly aliens and all in the scene. He goes, I don't know if the director knows what he's doing. <laughs> and then, and the guy turned around, and he goes, You know. You might be right. And then he mm-hmm. walked away. And then one like I another artist came up to Rob on the set and he goes, he goes, uh, what were you talking to? What were you talking to that guy about? He goes, Oh, you mean the grip? He goes, Yeah, I was telling him that, you know, you know, what I felt and what I thought. And he's just like, That's no grip. That was the director. That was Lucas. <laughs> I knew you were getting there. Yeah. That was Lucas. Yeah. What'd you say to the director? But you know why? I love his reaction though. He's like, yeah, you might be right. You know, he didn't have him fired or anything, you know, like you would hear these other stories. Uh, That's great. But anyway, yeah. Is, uh, is there a way people can find you if you want to be found? Because some, some of my guests, they don't want to be found, but you're right there in the public. Uh, Do you uh, have uh, places? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a new website out, which is uh, vgpfx.com. So effects spelled out, E-F-F-E-C-T-S.com, vgpfx.com. I'm also on Instagram, um, uh, vgpfx. Um, and it's a picture of me and Mark Hamill uh, with him in his cock knocker hand when we did Sushi Girl together. So that's the profile picture on Instagram if you want to click and follow me. And I'm also on Facebook as well so yeah i'm i'm always on the internet um there's always updates on instagram and what i'm working on and what i'm doing so you you basically follow me and my life 
on Instagram and on social media. That's great. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm glad you were able to talk about things that maybe other people haven't you know, asked you about maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, the whole beginning of, you know, getting into the UFOs. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about that stuff and movie making, but um, um, I know we both don't have that time, but uh, right. <laughs> you know, maybe we could do a Joe Rogan type of thing where, it, or yeah. I, I should say H3 podcast, which I'm a fan of as well. Yeah. Um, where they do three hours. So that's up to you if you can, that, you can take hey, it. The door's always open, my friend, with StreamYard. Ooh, like, ooh. I can literally do it for uh, hours. So but anyway, yeah, so until uh, we meet again, and uh, let me just cue up this outro because uh, I thought I was uh, a pro already, but I guess not. All right, so that's everyone cool. was still figuring it out. I'm still figuring out everything, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you got everyone have a good night. And we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, everybody.